Hier komen wij in vreemd. You're listening to Red Flag Radio Special Edition Beginner's Guide, and I want to acknowledge that we record this um, here in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation, and it's Indigenous land. It was stolen. It was never ceded, and it always will be Aboriginal land. The topic of today's discussion is Marxist economics, which please stay tuned. It's actually a very interesting subject, <laughs> and um, with me to discuss it, I have uh, Luca Tavan and Sarah Garnham. Welcome back Hi. to oh, the good podcast. To be back. So, all right, Marx, the most kind of important book that we think, or, well, you know, Fight Me might be not, um, that Marx ever wrote was this book, Capital, comes in three volumes. Mm. There's a lot of publications of it and republications of it. There's a lot of yep. guides to reading Capital, but it's a book essentially about economics. Why do we think that Marx's most important book is the economics book, not the sort of politics stuff? Well, I think that one of the main arguments that Marx made um, that set him apart from other socialists in his time was that it's not enough just to morally reject capitalism, to see the system as, you know, producing suffering, inequality, but it's actually, if you want to challenge the system, you need to understand scientifically how it works, what makes it tick, what generates inequality, um, you know, whether the system is actually capable of uh, just peaceful and continued expansion or whether it's going to go into periodic crises and most importantly, what sorts of power we have on our side to fight back against it. And so capital is something, I mean, he dedicated a very large proportion of his working and you know, active political life to because he thought it was essential to at least try and lay down a foundation for how to understand in an objective way how capitalist, capital, capitalism works as a system against all the people who basically wanted to use economics purely to ideologically defend the system. So what was some sort of his contemporaries or what was he trying to, um, or he did kind of correct about mainstream or bourgeois economics up until that point? Uh, Well, I think um, understanding where value comes from is if you wanted to sort of like pair it back to one essential thing, that was key, but he was only able to come at that um, by way of his whole political approach to the question. So uh, I think capital is often misunderstood as just a dry economic text when, in fact, it's a political and philosophical book. Um, It's probably the most developed um, part of Marx's work and it's not estranged from or separate to any of his early works. Um, You know, the um, 1844 manuscripts and all of that contribute a lot to our understanding of how capitalist society works also Communist Manifesto is absolutely crucial, I think, to understanding the um, the regressive role that the bourgeoisie is beginning to play from 1848 onwards. There's all these different aspects of Marx's work, but capital is really the culmination of so much of it because it brings together a moral critique of the capitalist system, a desire to see society overthrown in its current form and replaced with one that's based on genuine democracy. And it's from that starting point that Marx examines, well, what is the basis for the um, the social relations that make up capitalism and where are those contradictions so that we can actually start to think about overthrowing it? Mm. Um, so, yeah, if you just look at economics as some compartment of society um, and you try and examine 
market fluctuations and things like that. Uh, fluctuations. <laughs> yeah, good that's a good word. Yeah. Actually accurate. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. I mean, I think so Marx's document is much more than economics yeah. basically. So if it's so brilliant, I mean, and, and Marxists look at capital and go, actually here's somebody who understands how capitalism works and can explain a whole lot of different things about the system. Mm. Why are there no Marxist economics economics professors or economists um, today? Like what, how does it, how does today's kind of economic analysis look and what, what's wrong with that? Mm. Well, yeah, I think one of the problems um, in economics is that as soon as you delve into the questions that are meant to be answered by economics, um, you can see that they have immediate kind of social implications. So, the question of who produces value and profit in society to who actually, you know, deserves the, uh, essentially the wealth that is created, um, whether the system is, you know, in a state of equilibrium and whether crises are kind of accidents or aberrations or built into the system, all the kind of questions that are inevitably brought up by economics immediately bring into question, you know, the whole system and raise, you know, whether or not, a, there's a possibility of actually a more equal, more rational, more sane society. And so, I think since Marx's time, the kind of fundamental role that mainstream economics has played has not been to actually understand the economy in a scientific way, but to provide a, as many as possible kind of ideological justifications for the way that things are. And so you have a, this absurd situation in, in a lot of universities today. You have two different departments that study economics. One is kind of known as the, um, the economics department, <laughs> but because it's so dedicated towards uh, just trying to say why things are right the way that they are today, can't actually accurately describe anything. So they had to, they've started to build whole new departments, which are known as business schools, which are actually a bit more useful for the, for the capitalist class because they're actually dedicated towards training people in how to run successful enterprises. But they, they have to build this whole new faculty because what is passes as traditional economics doesn't actually explain anything at all. It's purely there to explain why capitalism is, is the best possible system and why there's no alternative to it. Mm. Yeah. There, yeah, I mean, there's so many... Um, superficial explanations for how the economy works from, you know, uh, demand is what informs supply to, you know, the market is just some sort of natural force that um, is imposing itself on all of us rather than actually the product of people's decisions, the capitalist class's decisions for the most part. Um, so there's all sorts of, it's it's almost, I think it's probably the most mystical discipline um, that the bourgeoisie have come up with in an academic sense because um, the way that the economy actually works is completely out of kilter with the ideological justifications for capitalist society. Um, it makes a mockery of the idea that we live in a meritocracy or anything like that if you actually examine what's really going on um, with the economy. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, one of the most extreme examples is the question of crisis because actually if you take at face value kind of neoclassical economics, is what, which is what's accepted as the mainstream, crisis is... Um, not just an aberration, but it's meant to be an impossibility mm. under the system. And all of the most lauded economists in the world have absolutely no explanation for crises, which are clearly the most important episodes in you know terms of what's happening in the economy. So I, felt, I thought this was so funny, I actually wrote it down. There's this quote from this guy, Eugene Farmer. He won a Nobel Prize, actually, for proving that markets are completely efficient and it's not possible for them to break down. And he was asked <laughs> about the last global crisis. Um, and he said, in response to questions about what caused it, he said, I don't know what causes recessions. I'm not a macroeconomist, but I don't feel bad about that. We've never known. 
debates go on about what caused the Great Depression. Economics is not very good at explaining swings <laughs> in economic activity. If I could have predicted the crisis, I would have, which is nice. I'd love to know more what causes business cycles. Yeah. So yeah. if that's, yeah. Which to me just says, sense. well, if you're a capitalist economist, if you want to defend the system, then why should you care about human beings, right? Mm. Because the whole system doesn't care about human beings. So I, th- I feel like you get these two different levels of mainstream economic kind of ways of thinking. One is this extremely surface level stuff, like the economist on the news is the person who looks at the stock exchange mm. and just says on the surface, this one is up, this one is down. Hopefully it'll even out. You never know. It's sort of, it's this kind of mystical thing and you can just sort of read this, the surface of it. And then you have this whole other level where it's like, it's so complicated. Most people couldn't possibly understand it. You need to be a Nobel Prize winning economist. Mm. And then actually when you kind of really try to um, drill down on, well, what are they actually saying in their whole complicated jargon or their 800 page books about it that are not as good as the long pages of Marx, <laughs> you know, and they're saying, actually, we don't really know. But it's too complicated for you all to understand. You plebs, like, leave it to the economists and then sometimes things just happen mm. and who knows. Mm. Yeah, and the other thing is that often in times of crisis when all of their pretty superficial theories break down, um, that's often when you get all sorts of bourgeois economists and mainstream commentators saying Marx was right. Um, I distinctly remember mm. that in 2008 when Lehman Brothers was collapsing and all the rest, that there were major you know, headlines in major papers like the New York Times and stuff um, declaring the virtues of Marx's analysis. So the thing is that it is actually such a piercing analysis and it's objectively correct to um, understand um, the economy in the way that Marx does as about profit accumulation and the exploitation of labour. Um, but most of the time, even the most erudite you know, bourgeois economists can't acknowledge that. But when their system goes into crisis, they sort of have to hint mm. at maybe he's yep got something going on in terms of his analysis. Um, And even like when I studied political economy at uni, even sort of left-wing academics, uh, they, you know, they have to make a nod to Marx, but they'll never fully embrace the Marxist um, theory of economics because it actually leads to a whole social critique. It's inextricable from that. Um, You can't actually, I think, seriously understand both the labour theory of value and the tendency for the system to go into crisis and not then conclude the revolutionary potential that exists always under the surface of capitalist society. Our across the world. Okay, so let's try to explain yeah. what Marxist economics actually is then, because in a lot of ways it's more it's way more simple than what you get presented as in that political economy course. Like all those academics would go out of business essentially if they just explained Marxist economics to you because you could do that in a semester and and get the hang of it um, and then you'd be done. So Marx begins in Capital Volume 1 by talking about this thing called a commodity or commodity production. So let's start with that. What does Marx mean when he talks about a commodity and the value of commodities? Yeah, well, I think – Commodity production is what sets capitalism apart from every other class society that's existed. Um, and you can have a critique of all of them, but capitalism is unique in one way, which is that everything that's produced under capitalism is produced as a commodity, which means it is not made with the intent and the, the kind of express purpose of fulfilling a human need. Um, it is made uh, basically for the purpose of being sold on the market to somebody who can access it. 
And that's one of the things I think, especially you can see it the most clearly today in 21st century capitalism that creates the kinds of stunning contrasts that exist in the world today. Um, so you look at food production, for instance, all of the food that's produced in the world, in big agribusiness, um, in restaurants, at every kind of level of the economy is not produced to feed people. It's produced to be sold as a commodity on the market and realise a profit. So on the one hand, you can have still a billion people who go hungry every day across the globe. On the other hand, food production actually is at historic levels. There's now enough food being produced every year to feed the global population at least one and a half times over at last count. Um, so you have a gap between what is actually produced and what needs it they meet because commodity production means that things are only actually produced for the purpose of realising a profit and those who are not considered part of the market because they don't have the purchasing power to access it, uh, their needs are not uh, kind of considered in the demand side of economics. Yeah, so you've got a situation where with capitalist um, production and organisation of society, Marx is saying what used to happen is something was useful for a per- for human beings to like use, like a cart or something or a potato um, and that was exchanged with something else that you might find useful or you might need to sustain yourself, um, like an onion. And that would be, <laughs> you know, that would be the way it works. People would look at stuff and go, well, is this really useful to me? Is that useful to you? What is it? How do we exchange those things? And what happens when you start this kind of um, universal commodity production, which is what capitalism starts to do, is it, it changes from, well, how useful is something? to this value that is called the exchange value. So how much is that thing worth on the market? And that might not make sense in a lot of cases because sometimes something's exchange value can seem a lot more than how useful the thing is. Or conversely, uh, sometimes something can appear cheaper than how useful it might be. But everything is just then measured through that value, um, which is called the exchange value. So why was that an important um, aspect of what Marx found about mm. commodities? Um, well, I think for a few reasons. One is that it's about making sense of the fact that there's a generalised commodity market. So um, the uh, value of a commodity is not established by just you know two parties that are exchanging it between each other. It's established by way of comparison with every other commodity on a you know increasingly globalized and interconnected market, um, and so because capitalism has a tendency to um, subordinate everything to this one market, um, it means there has to be a measure by which every commodity is exchanged. Something has to be um, common to uh, every single commodity in order for it to have an exchange value. Um, and so the that is part of the other breakthrough of the theory of exchange value, I guess, which is to understand that um, what makes it exchangeable is the amount of labour power that um, is embodied in it um, because, you know, commodities will vary wildly in terms of their utility, for one thing, and, you know, everything that exists in society still retains a use value, but it's just that it has no meaning in terms of exchange on the market. Um, and obviously use is something that's in the eye of the beholder, blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, commodities could also be judged on the basis of their weight or their size or something like this. But all of that is so arbitrary. Um, none of that can actually be generalised um, and none of that um, gets to the heart of the process of profit accumulation, which is um, the vital component that labour adds to each 
um, commodity and each pro- and the production process. So, um, yeah, exchange value to just explain it in a simple way, I guess, is um, the value embodied in each commodity that is a distillation of the labour time that went into producing mm. it. So Marx is looking around at all these commodities on the market and re- and it's quite obvious that how they're valued and how they're exchanged in that marketplace is not on how useful they are, how big they are, how much they weigh. He's going, what is it that is inherent in how that exchange value is set on the marketplace? And he comes to the conclusion that, and it's not just his idea actually, that other people have thought about the value of something is based on the labour that people have done put in to make that product. So this is where we get this term, um, the labour theory of value. And it's sort of a really important kind of ideological question as well, because otherwise you can think that the value of something is um, based on something that someone else is doing, or it's just a question of the materials that go into a product or, um, you know, those kind of resources. But Mark said, no, actually it's about, it's about, the labour that goes into something that is inherent to its value. Yeah, um, it's addressing a very, I guess, central question that anyone who, who's interested in how society works wants to answer, which is where do profits come from? Everyone recognises under capitalism that profits are the thing mm. that keeps the system ticking. The defenders of capitalism realise that as well, because when profit rates are low, they get very worried. Um, and so the question of who produces profits is very, very central to basically anyone's claim to who has the right to run society and whose interest should it be shaped. And so for Marx, the labor theory of value, on the one hand, it operates at this very basic level. What he's saying is that everything that exists in society is a product of human labor. Um, it's not the capitalists who oversee production that have created the world. It's workers who have produced it. But he's actually more specifically also addressing the question of uh the source of profits specifically in the context of a capitalist economy and the insight that I think Marx is true was building on at the time, a bunch of conclusions that actually mainstream economists were coming to that they very quickly ran away from. But he went further than them because he pointed out that under capitalism, there's actually only one commodity that the capitalist can purchase and engage in production, which has the ability to create new value and that's human labor power. So you think about it like you're a capitalist, your objective is to basically you start out with some money you want to buy a whole bunch of different commodities, bundle them together and engage them in the process of production so that at the end you have something that you can sell for more than you spent on everything at the start. If you just bought pretty stock standard commodities, you know, bought some steel, some rubber, um, some machinery, all these sorts of things, there's no reason to think that at the end of the process that you've gone through, someone would want to pay you more for all of that stuff than what you paid for all the kind of constituent elements except for labor power. Labor power is actually, that's i.e. workers who are hired in the process of production is the only commodity that is actually able to produce more value than what is required to sustain it, i.e. the capitalists get more out of the workers they employ than they have to pay them in wages to show up to work every day and continue to produce commodities. So labor under capitalism is like everything else a commodity, but it's very different from all the others because it actually makes new wealth. Yeah, I think um, Marx had a good way of understanding it um, as dead and living labour as well, which I think is useful because um, it's sort of like it's true if you just think about (laughs) what's living and what's dead in the production process. So the human element, the animate element, is the thing that creates new value Um, and everything else is not just sort of objects that um, we just have found, stumbled upon in the world, but um, is itself the product of past 
human labour. Um, so, but it's dead labour because it's no longer you know human beings mm. actively labouring. It's it's distilled in like a particular um, object. So every machine, um, raw materials, those kinds of things are dead labour. And those are neither profitable nor a loss for the boss. They contain value, but the value is um, uh, generated. The extra yeah, value. Yeah. Well, the value is it's embodied in the object from the beginning and doesn't alter. Yeah. Um, so it just you get what you pay for. Yeah. Um, so you need to whereas, do something to the steel and the rubber that Lucas said. Yeah. That already comes in. St- it has dead labour in it because yeah. it's been made into yeah. steel. It doesn't just come as steel. Yeah, yeah. But you can't just keep it as that. You have exactly. to have some living labour to yeah. bend it and craft it and yeah. make it to something. Sort of activates the process. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, labour, labour power is also a commodity and it's the one commodity that bosses can buy um, at the value of what it's worth at that moment in time. But then once they have bought a worker, like paid a worker a wage and um, forced them basically through the economic logic of the system to work for eight hours at the at the workplace, um, that worker can then produce more value than what was paid for them by the boss in the first place. Um, so as a commodity, labour power is self-expanding um, as a value source. Mm. And even the stuff that people think, well, what about something like mining or, you know, you're digging coal out of the ground and actually it's the coal that's worth something. So that's where your profits are of your own mine. You just need to get some land mm. and you've got some coal and then you sell the coal and you make a bunch of money. That misses out obviously the bit of who's digging it out of the ground and there is still labour involved in even things that appear to be sort of natural resources that you can exploit. Mm. And mining actually in terms of the added value, the profit that you get out of people who work in mining is one of the most exploitative, even if the wages appear to be high. You could be paid $100,000 to be a miner in Western Australia, for example, mm. and for every year of work that you do for your boss of your mining corporation, they make a million dollars out of your yeah. profit, out of your labour, and give you $100,000. Yeah. yeah. So it's not about the exploitation in that process is not about um, how much you get paid. It's about the fact that every bit of labour that we do is not rewarded with the value that's added to the exchange value of that commodity that we've produced. Mm. We get just a portion of it and usually a very small portion of it, right? Mm, So that's the basis of exploitation. That's where you get your profits from and things carry on. And so people can think, well, maybe that is a uh, decent way of running. You know, if (laughs) if if people do get paid and things are produced and then capitalism makes all these fancy shiny things um but then you have this added thing that we mentioned right at the start that it doesn't just function in this smooth way that profits don't just keep being made and being made and being made and that's it sort of unlimited profits of capitalism so you have these periodic um crises so what did marx have to say about that did he um real did he look at that tendency for the system to go into crisis and what does that mean, um, I guess, in the political sense as well? Can we talk mm. a bit about that? Yeah. Uh, well, Marx understood that crisis is inbuilt um, into the capitalist system. It's a permanent tendency. Um, and I think even before you get to moments where crisis erupts, the process of um, 
extracting value from workers, exploitation, in order to then translate that into a profit later on down the track um, is a, a, cri- a permanent crisis for every single worker on the planet, even when the system itself isn't in crisis, because um, when human labour is the only source of added on value and therefore profit, it means that every single boss everywhere uh, has an objective interest in pressing those workers as hard as they possibly can to squeeze as much value from them. And that's why the entire concern of bosses is to increase productivity, is to you know slash work uh, conditions and so on in order to um, push workers harder, make them feel more vulnerable, um, you know, achieve more KPIs in a day, all of that. So the actual living process of exploitation is n- never a neutral and static thing. It's um, it's oppressive. It's the basis of the most obscene and you know foundational oppression that exists within capitalism. Um, but then on top of that, the system goes into crisis repeatedly because there's a competitive scramble for profits between bosses um, and that competitive scramble um, compels them to invest more in dead labour or constant um, capital and that uh, over time will actually decrease the rate of profit Um, and the reason being that it's, again, human beings that create new value. Um, So if you've actually increased your the amount of machinery you have um, vis-a-vis the amount of human, you know, workers that you have at your particular workplace, uh, over time when that's generalised across the whole economy, that will drive down the rate of profit. And the reason there's a compulsion to invest in dead labour in this way and new machines and so on is in order to make immediate profits because there will be always new machinery and technological advancements that enable individual capitalists to um, you know, to produce a particular commodity that they're producing in competition with other capitalists producing the exact same thing at a faster rate because of the new machine and therefore to make um, more profits than their rivals in an immediate sense. But over time, when every other capitalist also buys into that same machinery, um, the overall rate of profitability will be lowered. Yeah. So this is technically That's- called... The tendency of the rate of profit to fall. That's what Marx talks about. It's a very controversial question in economics and most mainstream economists reject this. Otherwise, they would be able to understand why crises happen. Um, So so why is it so controversial then? Well, I think it's controversial because it points towards the conclusion that crises are an inevitable part of the capital system. And as soon as you accept that, it throws out a whole bunch of arguments about the way that the system works. One of the key, I think, uh, kind of ideological props that capitalism has is the argument that uh, it will tend to increase in a kind of maybe slow but fairly steady and consistent way people's living standards over time. That goes for the kind of uh, right-wing pro-capitalist economists, but it also goes for uh, reformists, social democrats, Labor Party type people who all say that it's possible through good legislation, good policy, you know, getting the vote out, engaging in pluralism, to slowly over time for workers to, in piecemeal ways, you know, increase their living standards, have more rights. The reality of crises, though, actually throws that out of the window because periodically capitalism firstly throws up whole new forms of barbarity where you see, you know, like we saw in the last financial crisis, uh, tens of millions thrown out of their homes in the United States, the most wealthy country on the planet. Living standards across all of Europe right now in the last decade actually plunged to levels that have not been seen since, you know, many decades ago and have not recovered since. Um, but yeah, also like 
that t- entire illusion that you can have some kind of piecemeal advance in people's uh, living standards and rights uh, totally thrown out of the window. And so accepting that actually, I think for Marxists is a, a kind of call to arms that we want to get rid of this irrational, um, anarchic, chaotic system that periodically throws people on the scrap heap, erases all the gains that we fought for for decades as activists and trade unionists, and replace it with one that doesn't periodically go into crises that can actually be rationally managed. Because I think one of the problems with uh, the ways that a lot of left-wing people understand crises is they're just a result of things that the capitalist class deliberately do, whether that's, you know, just speculating on the markets or some kind of conspiracy to create a crisis, you know, an excuse to drive down people's wages. But Marx actually explained things quite differently. He said that actually the capitalist class themselves aren't, they don't exert rational control over the system either. They are subject to the same blind forces, which force them to accumulate in the short term, even though it undermines their system in the long term, which is not to let those guys off the hook at all, but it's an objective function of the system that it's not just something that they choose to do or not, but it's built into the contradictory and crazy dynamics of the system. Yeah, and I think um, the the capitalist system itself sort of helps in a way in justifying those people who say that crisis is not something inbuilt, it's just something that, you know, happens accidentally because of some sort of rogue capitalist here or there. Because when crisis emerge, crises emerge, um, they sort of do just... Um, you know, they present in one department of the economic system first. So the um, most recent economic crash was a crash of like financial speculation bubble in a way, the subprime mortgage industry in the US. Um, But the point was that there'd been this process of more and more uh, financialization and speculative bubbles um, that kept kind of bursting um, precisely because underpinning that was this long-term decline in profitability. The uh, rate of profitability hasn't been restored actually um, to uh, pre-1975 levels um, because there was a big economic crash then and it's never been restored since then. And so capitalism is quite good at finding ways of deferring the, you know, the um, the final crash um, mm-hmm. because uh, it's a you know, vast economic system with lots of different ways to invest and to sort of cover over um, the fact that as a whole the economic system is uh, declining pro- in terms of profitability. So that's what was going on for decades before um, the crash of 2008. Um, but then it's also, I think, that precisely because uh, th- then the other way that the capitalists kind of <laughs> Um, uh, like entrenched crisis is that there are counteracting tendencies um, that prevent crisis, but often the capitalists can't actually engage in those because it's too much of a threat to their immediate interests. Um, Yeah, yeah. so one of the things that Marx talked about and that we've seen historically over, you know, the um, several crises and recoveries since is that large-scale destruction of capital is actually what's necessary to restart the system and to revive profit rates because yeah. if you if it's the accumulation of constant capital within the system, dead labour, then that needs to be um, purged in order to kind of restart the ratio again. Um, but, you know, we've seen since 2008 just the system kind of like stumble along on life support because there's no mechanism to just purge huge amounts of capital and there's the whole scenario of too big to fail now. So for the most part, governments and the capitalist class as a whole have just been trying to revive the system in all sorts of superficial ways and just um, yeah, revive investment without doing anything to actually fundamentally yeah. um, revive the underlying And the, f- and the fact of, um, you know, the 
increasing sort of globalized nature of capitalism even more i mean it's always been a global system but even more so today that if you thought about kind of wiping out one section of capital it's there's no way it won't have this knock-on effect in all these other sections whereas i think historically there's sort of more opportunity to do that I reckon we should finish on a couple of the political points arising from that economic um, understanding of how profit is produced because Mm. what Marx sort of took out of that, which I think is the most important thing about the labour theory of value and understanding that everything that makes profit in society is because human beings, workers, people are exploited through this system of making profit is made by those workers. So if we don't do that work, if we refuse to be exploited in that way, then the whole system um, grinds to a halt. And that's kind of what Marx took out of it, I think, and took that kind of conclusion to say, well, actually we do have to look at workers as the people who can fundamentally change um, the system. Yeah, mm. I really agree with that. I mean, if you look at just one of Marx's concepts, like the concept of exploitation, you can find in that a whole bunch of political points that basically you can put a worldview together out of. So firstly um, is the thing that you just mentioned, Roz, that there's actually one, the inverse side of that relationship of exploitation under capitalism, which drives obviously so much oppression, suffering, you know, the constant attempts to speed up work, put people in unsafe conditions, drive down their wages, also gives the working class a huge amount of social power because exploitation is a reflection of the fact that it's workers' labour that produces profits for the capitalist class, what they're allowing to survive. Secondly, though, like the reality of like the, the fact of exploitation, um, that all of the profits that the capitalist class get out of the system are basically essentially a product of unpaid labour, gives workers a claim to the whole of society. Um, because everything that the capitalist class say is what makes them unique, what makes them powerful, what makes them essential, their ownership of the factory, yeah. the financial system, the infrastructure networks, the telecommunications... All these things are dead labour. They're the product of labour that has been performed by workers in the past. We actually own all of this stuff. The last thing I think about exploitation is that it speaks to the fact that workers and bosses have completely counterposed interests. If workers want to increase their profits, the only really in the long term reliable and consistent way they can do that is by increasing the rate of exploitation, getting more out of workers for less. Likewise, if we on our side want to increase our living standards, have more rights, fight for better conditions, we have to be willing to cut into the profits of the capitalist class. And that seems like a very uh, basic point, but it's a key debate about the way that society works because you you look at here, even here in Australia, the forces we come up against, the Labor Party, where Anthony Albanese gets up and says that what we need is a great compact between workers and bosses, mm. the notion that we're all Australian and we're all in it together, are all about essentially the idea there can be some kind of harmony between the two major classes in society. Marxist theory of exploitation actually throws it out of the water and says we need to fight for one side um, you yeah. know, unceasingly of that class struggle. Which is why we talk about this constant class war. It's not that there's all of these, you know, movements or union struggles or people on the streets all of the time, which is sort of people's kind of immediate visual of like what class war looks like. But mm. this class war happens every time you get a paycheck at the end of the fortnight mm. and your boss wants to take more of the profit that you've made and you think that you should have more of it to live off. Mm. And, like, that's actually class war at that point of exploitation. Yeah. And that every single human who has to work to survive in the system um, is on one side of. And a lot of the time the mystification of all the economic stuff is that it's just your individual relationship with your individual boss that is the thing that, you know, 
you can um, have control over. It's, you know, you're allowed to negotiate your own wage or whatever it is that's just this kind of individual relationship. And what Marx tries to draw out and what we try to draw out as socialists is the fact that it's not an individual relationship. It's a class against class um, dynamic. And that's something that the only way you can start to push back in the other direction is if you see that as a collective struggle of people who work, of working class people. Yeah. um, I think that seeing the class struggle is an inbuilt feature of the whole, um, the economic beating heart of the capitalist system is really important. It's not some optional extra. Um, But that's a big, big problem for the capitalist class um, because they rely on people that have fundamentally opposed interests to generate their entire system, to generate all of their profits. Um, And I remember reading once Henry Ford said uh, famously that it was to his eternal disappointment that every time he bought a pair of hands, hired a pair of hands, they came attached to a brain. Um, So every single worker engaged in that process of exploitation and having their interests denied um, also has agency. But like you said, Roz, that agency can't be realised or um, put towards something that's actually powerful unless it's collective. And so the collective identity and struggle of the working class is the most important um, weapon that we have as individuals just well, as an individual, you can't strike. It's a, it's a meaningless way to refer to, you know, walking off the job as an individual or extending your lunch break. Um, but when the majority of workers strike and actually shut down the workplace, um, that's actually shutting down the very heart of the system. Um, and, you know, workers have done that in country after country under all sorts of regimes, including ones that call themselves Marxist, um, you know, all around the world. And they do it when their bosses attack them and do that, you know, too much. And there's a tendency always for the bosses to be pressing the rate of exploitation to push workers um, to the brink. And workers will always reliably at some point rebel against that. But also workers are part of social rebellions more broadly. Um, People use their industrial power to fight for civil rights, to fight for democratic rights. We're seeing this. This is one of the elements of the global struggles around the world that despite some of the uh, traditions of workers' struggle being eroded, still it becomes a natural tendency for people to think, well, what else can we use to um, to get some leverage? How else can we increase the power of our side? It's not just enough to be assembling in the streets. We should go on strike. Mm. So the strike is, um, you know, the fundamental mechanism that we have to destabilise the capitalist system. Um, but for us, we want to see that turned into a conscious revolutionary process as well. And Luca, just to finish on, if people can hear some rumbling in the background, that is actually a thunderstorm. (laughs) It's not me being hungry, (laughs) although I am a little bit hungry. It's a bit Um, spooky. So we're looking now really at an economic situation and there's some great um, articles in the Marxist Left Review people should check out about sort of the current economic situation. We're in a crisis period now, right? And the tendency of the system, as Marx pointed out, this economic system of capitalism to create these crises and to not see a way out of it is another reason why politically people can start to think, okay, there has to be a different way of organising things. Where do you think we are with this kind of current crisis? Well, it goes back to the question you raised earlier about uh, the rate of profit, because, I mean, ideologically, economists don't want to admit that capitalism has a tendency for the rate of profit to fall, but the capitalist class right now clearly recognise that they're not realising a good rate of profit because they don't want to invest anywhere. And occasionally, though, you get these little moments of clarity 
where they admit it, they look longingly back at, say, the post-World War II period where they said, oh, we used to be able to get a 15, 20% return on our investment. Now it's 5%. And who wants to park their money in productive investments where, you know, if you're lucky, you get five, an extra 5% of your money back on top. And so what you've had over the last decade since the crisis is uh, um, a sort of sluggish non-recovery where you can look at some statistics like the, the stock market, for instance, which is at an all-time high right now, um, but actually that itself reflects the lack of real recovery because what has not happened since the GFC is the capitalist class have refused to actually start investing their money back in the real productive economy, basically because they don't think that it's worth it. So they invest in the stock market, they buy their own shares, they park their money um, you know, in offshore tax havens. And that speaks, I think, to the total irrationality of the system. We live in this society where actually right now there are all these social needs that could be fulfilled. We still have the vast majority of the people people in the world live without the sorts of basic infrastructure and amenities that they need, let alone in countries like Australia, all the sorts of needs that get uh, unmet in working class communities, in indigenous communities, even in terms of the basic things like our public transport infrastructure. There's actually right now trillions of dollars that is not being employed in any of those areas of social activity because the capitalist class think that it's not worth it to risk their money. They don't think that the profits will be high enough. And so they're parking it. Inevitably, though, that doesn't just create a crisis in the sense that it means that society is stagnant, but it means that we can enter into new episodic, yeah, much more severe forms of downturn where the capitalist class becomes scared, uh, essentially, of the state of the economy and decide to rapidly withdraw all the investments that they have going on. And so I think right now, We've had a non-recovery that's gone for a decade that is looking like we're on the brink of uh, all sorts of new uh, instability. And so the question for us is really like, how do we politically prepare for that? And I think the most promising thing about this year has really been that uh, workers in a lot of places have flexed their muscles for the first time in a long time, whether that's uh, Chile, where we've had the biggest strikes since the end of the Hmm. dictatorship in the uh, 1990s, whether it's in France, where we've seen the biggest strikes really since... Uh, the late 1960s, well, depending on who you ask. Um, or, yeah, you know, um, even the teacher strikes in the United States. Um, a fighting working class movement is going to be essential, but also a left that can wage the ideological, like, kind of ideological arguments about who's to blame for the crisis, who should have to pay for it, and arm people with the sorts of arguments we need to fight to win. And so that's the task that we want to be engaged in kind of constructing across the globe right now. Yep, I totally concur. That's okay, a really good way to <laughs> yeah. summarise the whole point of Marxist economics, I think. Okay. Well, thanks very much for uh, listening. Thanks for having us. And yep, thanks pleasure. for joining me. And um, keep talking, keep asking questions, keep coming along to engage with us in the Introduction to Marxism discussion groups that are available in your nearest big city in Australia. And um, keep thinking about the world and how we're going to change it. Because... Right now, we have a world to win. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. Mm-hmm.